IndieCast is presented by Uproxx's Indie Mixtape. Hello everyone and welcome to IndieCast. On this show we talk about the biggest indie news of the week, we review albums and we hash out trends. We also explore indie rock history. In this episode we're going to go back to a pivotal year in recent indie rock history, 2013. My name is Stephen Hyden, and I'm joined by my friend and co-host, Ian Cohen. Ian, how are you? So, I'm stoked because by the end of this episode, I'll have forfeited any claim I have left to critical objectivity. I mean, I, I, I think it's a myth to begin with, but like, it's going to be gone. I think it's very freeing because when we talk about 2013, um, it's a lot of music that I should, by all rights, despise because... We're, we're going to start to see a theme. It's like, it sounds like, you know, a 3 p.m. set at Coachella. It sounds like the H&M at the Glendale Galleria. <laughs> and yet, I was living a lifestyle that made it very amenable to that sort of music. Like, let me just go off for a bit. I was, you know, writing full time. I had not gone back to school yet. Um, and the most emblematic part of it was in the summer of 2013, I was actually on a kickball team in Silver Lake. Moby was on our team for a few games. <laughs> A guy who ended up marrying Sia for like a year, a couple of adult skaters, a woman who um, did fashion design on a Twin Shadow video. And afterwards, we would go, we would after party at Thirsty Crow, which is a bar I know you're familiar with because Father John Misty yes. wrote a song about it. It was across the street from where local natives made their sophomore album. So, I mean, I, br- wow. I, I bring this all up not to flex at all but like just to point out like i'm surprised we were even talking at that point you know uh just just kind of given like how i look back it's like wow that is like so stereotypical like la like how did i live with myself but it was fun (laughs) you just had such a an insane list of signifiers there i know 2013 i'm trying to think like (laughs) i think the funniest one for me were was the the adult skaters part. I yeah. think that was my highlight of that. Um, I kind of just want to tank our outline right now and just talk about how good of a kickball player Moby was. He played one. I, he I, played one game. Um, he showed. Okay. He showed up for one game and he was super competitive. We lost that game. Like we lost <laughs> most of our games because no one knew the rules. And then he had to like go on tour afterwards. So from that point forward, because like rumor got around that he was, people thought I was Moby. Uh, this happened quite a few times in 2013. So shout out to that neck tattoo. No one ever makes that mistake anymore. Well, I just want to say balls in your court, Moby. I want to hear <laughs> Moby get on a podcast and talk about how Ian was as a kickball player. We need, we need to uh, start a, a, a Moby-Ian Cohen feud. I, I do not want um, beef with Moby, please. Uh, okay, bad pun, but like I well, really Well, for the do. good of the podcast, oh. for the good of the podcast, right. I think that would you know give us a little more juice and you know, <laughs> we'll, be, we'll be shooting up the iTunes charts. After that. Uh, So the reason that we're going to be talking about 2013, I guess, our timely hook Mm. for this. And it's a very, I guess, um, uh, you know, it's not a great hook. It's (laughs) not a terribly relevant hook. But, you know, we're looking for an excuse to talk about 2013. The reason why we are is that there's a new album out today called Energy, which is a very ironic title considering the album. It's by a duo called Disclosure. And Disclosure, of course, put out their debut record in 2013. That record was called Settle. And they were part of this, you know, freshman class of artists that emerged in 2013 that ended up having, I think, a big impact on indie music. And, you know, Disclosure is a group that I think has, you know, faded a bit over time. But this was also the year that Hayne put out their first record. The 1975 put out their first record. Lord put out her first record. Artists that ended up having, again, a big impact on the shape that indie music took and how, I think in a lot of ways, it broke with the past, with what we used to consider to be sort of emblematic sonically of what indie music was. In this episode, we're going to be talking about how like that really, I think, took a a decisive turn in, in 2013. But before we get to that, let's talk about Disclosure. This was a duo uh, that emerged in the early 2010s, made up of two brothers, Howard and Guy Lawrence. At the time that their first record, Settle, came out, they were both pretty young. I think um, like the younger brother, Howard, was like 19 years old. About 19. And I think Guy, uh, the older brother, was was 22. Mm. 
And this was a record that um, I remember mainly for the breakout song, which is the single Latch, that featured a pre-fame Sam Smith uh, on vocals. And um, I remember loving that song and listening to it all the time. And as I was preparing for this episode, um, I listened to that song a bunch more. I think that song really holds up. It, it, it definitely reminds me of that year, uh, you know, when I, when I listen to it now. The rest of the record didn't make as much of an impression on me, although it was very critically acclaimed. I, I looked at the review on Pitchfork. It got a 9.0 from Pitchfork. I think it ended up being nominated for a Grammy mm-hmm. uh, that year for, for Best Dance Electronica Album. And I feel like, I don't know what your memories are of this album, but to me, this 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 kind of struck me as the kind of album where people who don't really listen to electronic music, like they might not have like any other electronic albums in their collection. Like mm-hmm. this was the album like the one electronic album in, in their collection. Like it was a very accessible record. Um, they were sort of like a dumbed down Daft Punk mm. in some respects. Um, and it seems like, uh, you know, that was maybe their entree into like the hip <laughs> corners of indie music at that time because of their accessibility. But they also seem maybe slightly underground at the same time. Yeah, I think that um, you mentioned it's like kind of an electronic record for people who don't like electronic music. And I remember the people who were like super into electronic music thought like they were just frauds or they were uh, people who were just kind of piggybacking on the more obscure kind of things going on with uh, you know UK dance music and UK electro. But um you know, for me, uh, when this record was starting to kind of brew, now this, in 2013, I felt like there was a lot more lead time uh, and also albums leaked. Like that was a thing back in 2013. So you could kind of tell in advance what we're gonna, what was going to be a thing. And disclosure to me, that was going to be a thing. So I gave it more attention than I might otherwise give a similar record in 2013. And I mean... Um, as someone with not a lot of uh, investment in electronic music, it just sounded to me, like you said, a very accessible record. I think it was more kind of like Basement Jacks to me, um, but just a couple of hit singles, a couple of like tracks that just kind of, you know, move, just kind of move the needle a bit. The guy from Friendly Fires was on there. Um, and it was just a good record to like throw on when I would had to do something for like 45 minutes at a time, like. I don't know, play to video games or like drive to work. So, um, yeah, I would say that when a fire starts to burn was my particular one. We played that song uh, on the sidelines during the kickball league. Uh, but then, we, <laughs> but we also were playing like Jesus too, and the dog started barking, so we had to get rid of the stereo altogether. So, like, what did Moby think of Disclosure? It was Moby. He wasn't around by that. He wasn't around by that time. I, okay. But the thing is, like you mentioned, it's like that's a kind of record that, in a way is kind of similar to what Moby did. Um, exactly. It, it, it arrived at a time that it didn't really set any trends, but it just, from that moment, you would think like this, when we look back on 2013, for better or worse, like this is what all of it was culminating towards because it kind of, it was like EDM adjacent, not like music itself, but like the festivals like Ultra or, uh, you know, just the Sahara Tent at Coachella. So it was that, it kind of, paved the way a bit like for chain smokers or like Kygo or something like that. I mean, it, it, it's, it just seemed like, okay, when we're looking back at 2013, what it was all leading to, we're going to look back at this record, which kind of explains why they haven't aged uh, particularly well. Like they were just kind of, they put things together rather than pushing things forward. Yeah, it was a very, again, it, the songs were very simple, mm. um, and it was something that, you know, you didn't have to know about the history of electronic music to get into this record. You could just get into it because they were good pop songs, and the Chainsmokers comparison, I think, is very apt, actually. I mean, I think that makes a lot of sense. Not only is it two guys, but, like, it is a very similar uh, type of dynamic. Of course, Chainsmokers, I don't think ever really had... Were they ever like considered an indie group? Not, or, like, not really. I don't think so. But I think it's when you think about like, oh, it's this is an indie record. Like it had Sam Smith on it, and like I think about that when I look at where he's at now. Similar to how like Adele's like biggest albums were on the same label that um, released the Monitor, and Paul Epworth was producing that, and he did like Block Party. So it's just kind of weird how. Um, indie kind of gets just like thrown around willy-nilly but like i think the point is that like 
disclosure was embraced by people who were otherwise listening to say Kurt Vile in 2013. So that's what it means to me. You know, it showed up on the same right. lists. So they have this new album out called Energy, and we're they not going to sure spend a do. ton of time. <laughs> yeah, we're not going to spend a ton of time on this record because, you know, I think it's fair to say that you know we were talking about Settle being an album where, in 2013, if you were an indie music listener, if you were a Pitchfork reader, you maybe got into that record because that was what was happening in indie music at the time, even if you weren't particularly well versed in, in electronic music. Otherwise, I kind of think of like Energy as a record where, like. This is a record made for people who, like, they're, they're, the last electronic record they got was Settle <laughs> in 2013. Yeah. Or maybe it was Caracal, the, yeah. the, the record that uh, Disclosure put out in 2015. And this is their third record. It's their first album in uh, five years. And, um, yeah, I mean, this is a record. It kind of reminds me of what our conversation about the Washed Out album uh-huh. from a couple episodes ago, where that album, you know, we talked about that in the context of Chill Wave and how that really felt like a deliberate evocation of that time and not trying to move the ball forward, but to remind people that, Hey, you used to like this music and this is music made in the same style. And so I'm reminding you that I still exist and energy feels like a, we're we're reminding people that we still exist Mm -hmm. type record. It doesn't seem especially connected to 2020. I don't feel like disclosure necessarily has been like studying contemporary pop music it doesn't really feel like it it fits in any kind of modern context it feels like again like a record that could have come out in 2013 if not for some of the guest spots yeah. like we have Kalisa's on this record common shows up on this record right. maybe that could have happened in 2013 i mean it yeah it's the kind of record where common shows up on the last <laughs> track i feel like that kind of sums up what this album is like uh so yeah i i we're going to be talking about this in a minute about this class of 2013 acts that emerged that year that really helped to kind of think change the face of indie music in a lot of ways. And Disclosure is part of that class, mm-hmm. although unlike a lot of other acts from that year, I think it's fair to say that this group is like pretty faded and maybe even already exists as a nostalgia act if it's like not too early to say that. I mean, the, 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 I hear this record and it just reminds me of the early 2010s. Well, I think that's an important thing to remember because like with Washed Out, that I don't want to alienate, which I what I imagine is a significant part of our audience, which are people that like kept up with like music websites in college and then kind of stopped and then and just but like still want to find out about music. And Disclosure, I think, when I think about people I know in real life who would be interested in this album, that's kind of it. You know, it's like, oh, man, like when a fire starts to burn, we listen to that in college or whatever. And things kind of happen. And when a new Disclosure album comes out, it's like, oh, I remember that. As a matter of fact, they they brought back the guy, the preacher who does uh, the When a Fire Starts to Burn sample. And that to me just seemed like it's like when rappers like. Will re- like when they feel like they're being forgotten about, they'll remind you that they did a song that was very, very popular by like outright saying it. And, um, you know, Disclosure, it's it's a fascinating uh, record to listen to in 2020, if only because it doesn't fit in any context. Like in any other year, you know, they like they would be playing the 7 p.m. slot at, you know, Coachella or you know, like opening for Chance the Rapper or something along those lines. But those fe- <laughs> right. those festivals don't exist. And the joke about Settle was that, like, it was the shoe-buying soundtrack of 2013. <laughs> but, like, <laughs> right. you can't go to the mall now. And so, um, nor can you go to, like, you know, a high-end club that or just a bar that serves, like, $15 cocktails. So, like, uh, where are you going to experience a Disclosure album in 2020? Because I think... Right. What it comes back to in 2013 is that I experienced a lot of this music in a social setting, which made it a lot more, you know, made it easier to kind of, you know, just be like, okay, it's, this is happening. That's cool. You know, I'll just. You know, it would, you know, it would, would be funny. I don't know if we'd want to do this on a podcast or, or someone should write this piece, but like do a ranking of like the records that were hurt the most by festivals not existing in 2020. <laughs> like to me, like the number one record by far is the Slow Rush oh, by Game yeah, yeah. I, I feel like that album was made to dominate music festivals and they just got the legs taken out from under them. I mean, I think still, I think pe- a lot of people still really like that record, yeah. but it, I think it would have been bigger if they could have had festivals. Run the, uh, no, like, run, run the Jewels 4, that or Slow Rush. Run, like that, 
that was going to lock down every single APM slot from like here to like from from here to like Barcelona, you know. And maybe like a little bit farther down the list, you'd have like the Krangbin record. You know, <laughs> I feel like they that's like very festival music. You know, we we talked about disclosure. I mean, you you had a funny line from our last episode about how the Killers are the band that like you know they headline all the festivals that end up getting canceled uh, <laughs> yeah. in a normal year because there's no ticket sales being made. Um, so yeah, uh, yeah, this 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 definitely feels like yeah related to shoe buying and, and Coachella and. A lot of sort of lifestyle music where we're not having that kind of lifestyle this year. I'm just going to put on this new record. Like what I did to get in the mood is like I listened to this record and just like waited in my own house for 10 wa- for ten minutes to get water. Like that's how I <laughs> – like that, that's what got me in the mindset. I think it was right. effective. Well, let's let's pivot to our larger conversation because I think ultimately we're more interested in talking about 2013 than we are about – this new disclosure mm-hmm. album, um, and I remember that year I wrote a column for Grantland when I was when I was working there about how I felt like there was this movement going on in indie music that really felt like a decisive break from the past, and it was tied with the release of the first uh, Heim record, Days Are Gone, which came out in the fall of 2013, and around that same time we saw the first records, as I said before, from like the 1975 mm. from Lord churches put out their first record that year. Yeah. I, I kind of pop put out their first record and I mean, they faded a little bit, but they, they were kind of a thing for a while. Um, this wasn't a debut, but the, the third vampire weekend record, modern vampires of the city, uh, also came out that year. And that also feels a part of this in some way, just because of the participation of Ariel Reichstad yeah. with that record. And he ends up being a pivotal figure with a lot of these, um, with a lot of these acts, and you know, we talked in our Arcade Fire episode about how the suburbs helped to mark the end of the aughts in a way, mm-hmm. and I think in a way that like the 2010s didn't really begin until 2013. Like at that time, there was this long-running movement in in critical circles, certainly to make pop influences more acceptable in indie music. You know, there were a lot of think pieces. I guess I'll utter the word poptimism on this podcast, even though I I feel like people who are not invested in like weird critical circle jerks and social media don't really care about that term. But like, you know, that idea that like pop music and rock music should be put on the same plane of authenticity and acceptability mm. in, in all facets of music. I think what changed in 2013 is that it was no longer a conversation about like what's acceptable, but pop aesthetics actually became preferable in indie music and it became the standard for how we talk about you know music that's considered innovative or forward thinking or relevant or 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 simply hip um and you know when we talk about indie music in sort of like a broad classic sense you know we often think about music that is essentially derived from punk and like DIY kind of early 80s indie music mm-hmm. this idea of music being maybe like of a lower fidelity being gritty being loud being um, catchy, but also decisively anti-commercial mm. in a way. And if you look at some of the big records um, of the early 2010s, albums that did get a considerable amount of attention in the indie press, you have albums like The Monitor, say, for instance, by Titus Andronicus, or Celebration Rock by Japan Droids, you know, two albums, of course, that we've talked a lot about here and in other uh, forums. Um, you know, those albums, to me, sort of exemplify those old-school indie rock type, um, you know, qualities or, or things that people would uphold. And I feel like in 2013, it was really the end of that. Mm -hmm. Like, I feel like after that, there were not going to be albums like that, that were going to be, be considered sort of the focal point of indie music anymore. And that had to do with the critical, critical conversation, but it also had to do with changes in popular taste and like also us starting to listen to music exclusively via streaming, you know, and how, like what kind of music's going to work well in that format um, versus, you know, how we used to listen to music. Um, But yeah, I think when you listen to those records again, you know, we have the Heim record, the 1975 record that came out that year, Lord. I mean, those three are definitely the stars of that freshman class of 2013. And we're going to talk a little bit more about the 1975 and 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 Heim in a minute, but 
I'm just curious, like, what are your thoughts on 2013? Uh, like, what are your memories of that? And how do you feel like that changed indie music? Well, uh, you know, if we can call Larry Fitzmaurice a friend of the pod, and I think we can, he uh, hit yes. he hit on a similar idea like earlier this week. And I swear to God, we were going to do this episode before he published that piece. I have the receipts. But then he told me it's like that he was going to publish that piece like a couple like a month ago. So we were all kind well, of we on- should get we we should give a shout out to his Substack, yes. by the way. Was it Last Donut uh, of the Night? Don't? Yes, he yeah, he wrote about this same idea like on in his newsletter this week, yeah. talking about 2013 being a pivotal year. Yeah, and um, you know, I think about it uh, similarly in that um, you know, by that point like pop music or like what was something that was becoming more embraced, but uh, this was the year I think that the quiet part was said out loud because you would see uh, albums like Justin Timberlake's 2020 experience and random access memories by Daft Punk, just like not even remotely indie albums. Like we're not talking about like in the past, we'd be like something like Robin uh, being considered like pop music, but kind of from an indie sort of standpoint, like this was like, okay, you know, 2020 experience, like one of the songs like sounds kind of like Jimmy world. Like, yeah, this is us, man. Like, and Daft Punk's random access memories. It was kind of a, if you can't beat them, join them sort of year. I don't think those albums were like very good. And I think people kind of found that out pretty quickly. Um, but kind of, I still like random access memories. I'll stand up for that. I feel like time has not been like good to that album critically. The 2020 experience I thought was bad at the time. And like, I think people have come to come around to that. Although people still defend that. I've, I've made jokes about the 2020 experience on Twitter and the uh, the JT defenders will come out of the woodwork sometimes, and you know, God bless defend, them. Like strawberry bubble gum or something like that, <laughs> or whatever. Like the big songs yeah. were from Suit and Tie. Yeah, God, God bless them, man. Like that. That <laughs> I, I, I admire that. Um, and I think just otherwise, when we talk about like acts like Hyam or Churches, I mean, they do come from this kind of like indie quote unquote aesthetic in that they're bands. Um, with identifiable like drums, uh, bass, guitar, like the power trio sort of setup, but uh, it it just became like what? Of course we're pop. Like why would we hide behind things and why would we record lo-fi? And you could also throw in Sky Ferreira in there as well um, and Blood Orange. I think that's an important artist to name because you know Dev Hines. He used to be in a band called Test Icicles, like which was sort of like scrappy british punk and then he made an album with mike mojas as light speed champion and i think that um in general it was i think i think in a lot of ways like you know critics are about access and in the 2010s it was just the like you know you go to a party sponsored by tito's vodka and like you know get to hang out with waves and maybe the guy from beach fossils but now there was more sense of like it was kind of working alongside pop music. It's like now we're in like the Coachella VIP area um, and just kind of getting away from everything that had kind of defined the 2010s, which was like, you know, the Arcade Fire earnestness. Even they kind of made their pop album. Uh, Animal Collective being kind of like twee and uh, kind of googly eyed or like grizzly bears like or um, dirty projectors kind of doing a more art pop sort of thing. Um, yeah, all the things that like were seen in the past as like defense mechanisms, so you wouldn't be seen as pop. We're now just like let's just do away with that, and it, it was a it was a really interesting development to see at the time. Yeah, it was definitely I think a pendulum sh- uh, swing from I think what some people felt were the excesses of aughts era indie. And yeah. you mentioned Animal Collective and Grizzly Bear, who. Um, were bands I really loved at the time, and I still really, I mean, I, I, I like the records, especially that they put out in the aughts, but I think there was this sense of, like, indie music getting very arty, uh, you know, sort of obscurity for obscurity's sake. Mm-hmm. I would also group in, like, the Dark Was the Night oh, yeah. crew, you know, the National and, and, and Bon Iver, who um, are, have, they obviously... I mean, still thrive anyways. They, yeah, they, in many ways they got more popular in the 2010s. Um, but yeah, I think, especially like in the critical community, I think there was a feeling that, you know, there was, um, this, you know, we're, we're listening to animal collective, this music that like, <laughs> even the record, like Meriwether post pavilion, which had some pop, 
um, influences to it. I think a lot of people just felt like things were getting maybe a little too esoteric and you could look at the pop world and it just seemed more fun. Maybe the people, it, was, uh, it seemed it, more fun. And I think that like people stopped taking pride in kind of being like unpopular or whatever. Like, I think if you look back far enough in history, like the critical consensus is like very close to what was actually popular at the time. Like, but now, now there was just really no separation whatsoever. Like there was really no counterweight unless, unless we want to talk about like what was happening, like what, what was bubbling under at the time, which was, I have to say it like, you know, the, the, this rise of emo and pop punk that was happening. Oh, just take under- a drink, everybody. Yeah. Take a drink. <laughs> Ian said emo. Yeah. I mean, <laughs> I, I, I feel like our audience would start drinking at noon on a Friday guys anyway. So I'll allow it. But, um, I think that's the, and that's an entirely different conversation, but I think a lot of that did rise up, not as like a response, but I think it was well suited as a counterbalance to this embrace of like slicker sounds and bigger access and just critics kind of being um, not antagonists towards the popular discourse, but kind of along for the ride, kind of treating it like politics where it's like kind of a horse race sort of thing. But, you know, I don't want to, like, project too much, though, because, like, people legitimately love this music. And this is just where we stood at in 2013 after years of, like, pop and indie music being equally accessible and no MTV and no real radio. This is just where we were at. I mean, I think, you know, I think the positive case that you would make for this shift that happened in 2013 is that if you look at the history of indie music, you know, it seemed like there had that we had come to a point like where a lot of indie bands were only listening to like other indie bands mm. and they were recycling a lot of the same influences. So you ended up with like, you know, the fourth or fifth wave of like post-punk revivalism, or you have like another band that sounds like Husker Du, or you have another band that, you know, sounds like whatever, uh, you know, well-respected indie touchdown there is. And, you know, you can only do that so many times before it starts to get really, really boring. Mm. And I feel like with a lot of these acts from, from 2013, you know, one of the, yeah, I mean, like like Haim and the 1975, Lord, Vampire Weekend, they're all very different bands. But I think one thing that, that unites them is that they all have pretty Catholic taste. Yeah. You know, they, you know, I think they're all interested in... An ironic thing to classical. say, given that like Vampire Weekend and Haim are like kind of notoriously Jewish, but... Well, exactly. <laughs> but yeah, Catholic in the sense of having wide-ranging taste, you know, having like, you know... Uh, being interested in uh, you know classic rock history, but also having a real appreciation for like various forms of pop, R and B, hip hop, and and bringing that into uh, this indie context. And um, I think that's the positive thing. I think like one thing that uh, if you want to make a criticism of this, it's that it really did I think eliminate any distinction between like the underground and pop music. The idea that indie music, I think at one time was maybe considered to be the alternative. Like literally that was the term people used for a while, alternative music to what was being sort of promulgated by like major corporations, what you would hear on the radio, that this was something that would maybe be a little bit more experimental, a little edgier, a little noisier, a little angrier. Um, And it seems like at least in the mainstream of indie, like they weren't really offering an alternative anymore it was like we are actually we want to join now pop music we want to be a part of that and i think the uh, the interesting is like you mentioned alternative like alternative rock in 1995 was you know some of the most popular bands in the world so i think this right this is kind of what we're seeing right now when we look back on it it's like oh yeah like indie like it's similar to like the way we talk about like someone like beck or what have you like uh, I think there's a case to be made that like maybe that a lot of these bands are kind of filling that same sort of space that uh, those bands were like really popular bands, but also ones that were kind of a little bit left of center compared to like the biggest pop acts, you know? So two bands that we want to talk about in this episode a little bit more in depth are, as we said before, Haim and the 1975, because um, I think along with Lord, you know, they are the most successful from this class of, of 2013 acts. And they have, they both put out records that um, have been really popular and acclaimed 
in 2020. Of course, the Heim record is Women in Music Part 3, and the 1975 put out Notes on a Conditional Form. I guess the 1975 record is more of a polarizing record, as we would expect from that band. Some people really didn't like that record. Some people really love it. Yeah, but I, so, I think some people say, really don't like that record, Steve. Yeah, well, we'll get to that <laughs> in a moment. But like, but I think it's fair to say that the 1975 are, at this point, one of the emblematic bands of indie music. Yeah. They are... Um, passionately written about either positively or negatively Mm -hmm. and of course Haim I think they've really graduated to I think um like I don't want to say elder statesman status because they haven't been around that long but they are I think looked at as like um but by by a lot of people as like one of the great bands I know like Spin Magazine they did that list of like their 50 favorite rock bands recently Uh which was a very interesting list. Um, you know, we'll leave it at that. But like, they put Heim at number one uh, on their list, and I actually felt like makes sense. I think there's a lot of people that that agree with that. Yeah. Um, and uh, so, yeah, I mean, these records. It, I, this is a great thing about our podcast, I guess, because these records already came out, but like, we're choosing to talk about them now anyway. We're not just ad- adhering to the release schedule uh, regimen. Yeah, I think with it's it's almost like more fun to like talk about them a couple months after because. You know, nowadays, like I was saying before, there's there's you rarely get the records that far in advance and there's no leak. So when you experience the record with everyone else, you just kind of get inundated by all the takes and all the opinions. And like it's hard to develop a a, a real, you know, a real solid opinion about it in like a weekend. And so I think it's I think it's almost more fun to like look back after a, a couple months because, you know, we've all experienced a couple years in the past couple months and you know <laughs> right. it, as weird as it is to say like yeah man uh notes on a conditional form holds up like a record that came out like three months ago uh right. at the same time it does seem like it's a little bit of ancient history so i mean i i like to see how these things have settled like now that you can have an opinion and not get immediately like hit by a tidal wave of uh takes so let's yeah i mean and i think it's fair to say that both of these records will end up on year-end lists. Absolutely. Um, I, I think especially the the Heim record, oh, yeah. uh, Women in Music Part 3. I mean, that definitely is like one of the most critically acclaimed albums of the year. And I think popular response, too, was like really strong. I think people really liked that record. And, you know, my history with, with, with Heim is, you know, I remember when Days Are Gone came out, and I really liked that record. And I think what I responded to in that album is just the obvious lineage that they have with other LA bands of the past. Like they've been compared to Fleetwood Mac a lot. Um, you know, I think that there's, you know, even elements of like, you know, Carol King, the Eagles, um, you know, Linda Ronstadt, all that sort of 70s LA type stuff, but also with a very modern sensibility. They weren't doing an explicitly retro um, you know, musical presentation they were incorporating, as I said before, like elements of like Destiny's Child and like other forms of pop music. And it's what made that record, I think, such an emblematic record of 2013. Their next record, which came out four years later, uh, Something to Tell You, I thought personally was significantly weaker. Uh, I thought it just kind of repeated what they did on Days Are Gone, just not as well. I wrote a review of that record, and uh, a lot of people didn't like that (laughs) review. I think a lot of people disagree with me. Maybe they really like that album. Um, it's one of those reviews like where you see yourself getting subtweeted by other critics, like in your own feed, like people that you follow are subtweeting you, Ugh. which is pretty, pretty wild. But I stand by it. I don't think that record is all that strong. I will say, though, how, that Women in Music Part 3, to me, like it does feel like a return to form. And I think it really shows them making strides in like how they make records. Um, you know, because again, going back to a point I was making earlier about like classic indie, you know, there's a certain premium that's placed on rawness, like in the production, you know, again, sort of like a lower fidelity, very gritty, you know, put another way, you know, there's a sort of romantic, you know, people romanticize records that sound like shit, basically. <laughs> and I think, uh, you know, that idea is is definitely out of vogue, I think, in current sort of mainstream indie music. And I feel like this album like really exemplifies that. Like this album to me, like it sounds immaculate. Yeah, it's very well produced, very well put together. I think it sounds incredible on headphones. Like I prefer to listen on to it on headphones versus like on a car stereo. Um, and you know, sometimes to me, 
that sort of like sonic perfection, it, it can come across a little bland, you know, and that was my problem with the second record. I think that when Haim doesn't have great songs at the center, they, they don't have a whole lot else there to grab onto. Like it, it can just sound, you know, again, like a little blah to me. Um, but, and, you know, I think even on this record, I'm not sure like what Haim has to offer beyond delivering great bops, you know, like, I think that's what they do, uh, which is a double-edged sword. It's, it's kind of like Steve, what I love Steve about them. Steve just said bops, you know, drink, go, if, I know, you're, if you're I drinking, know. go ahead and just like, like I know, finish exactly. whatever drink you have, man. I know. <laughs> it, it, please, please roast me in on Twitter for saying that. But, um, it's part of what I love about 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 Haim. I think like you know they deliver great pop music and they, and they're pretty straightforward about that. And you know like the song "The Steps," for instance, I think is like one of their best singles. I mean, I th- yeah. I, and there's other songs I think that are just tremendous on this record. How do you feel about um, Haim in 2020? <laughs> well, I mean, in in 2013, I like "Days Are Gone" as well. I think the Fleetwood Mac comparisons were kind of. It's just kind of funny because, like, when I think about Fleetwood Mac now, besides, like, the music, I just think about, like, how much they hated each other and, like, how much <laughs> right. that tension played out in their music. And, like, hi, I'm, like, famously are, like, they all, they're all, like, you know, super tight as sisters. And um, with, with that, that record, to me, I thought of it along the lines of, like, Wolfgang Amadeus, Phoenix, or Hot Fuss as, like, a record that was pretty top heavy like the singles were incredible and the and and the i guess the the album cuts held serve just a really good time capsule of 2013 for all the reasons that you mentioned um i'll tell you what like i don't know if i listened to the 2017 record that much but like if i could change your mind gets played in ralph's so much um and i heard it's like it is a Ralph's classic. And I thought to myself, like, <laughs> you know, during this this six-month album rollout, like, I went, like, when I started going back into supermarkets, like, after COVID, I heard if I could change your mind. I thought to myself, like, uh, is this going to, like, in the same way, like, festivals being canceled, um, you know, really affected Tame Impala, like, whether, you know, people going to Ralph's less is going to somehow harm the Haim album release because if these songs can't get played in Ralph's or... CBS or whatever. But that being said, I mean, I think when I came into this record, I was like really pleasantly surprised by it. Um, I think the production is in its own way scuffed up a bit. Like Rostam from Vampire, formerly a Vampire Weekend, really makes it just an interesting sonic album. Um, I think that it's an album to me of like third, second or third singles. Like they don't quite pop off the way that The Wire did. Uh, but it's an app where every song is the second or third single in a way. And it's more consistent to me. Um, and it, I, I really enjoyed it. Um, you know, it's like much, it, it reminds me a bit of like what happened with the XX where they put out the record that like the second record coexist that wasn't quite as like well liked. And then they just come back with a more vibrant, a fun album, even though there's like a lot of, you know, like heartbreak that goes into this record as well. So, I mean, do I love it to the same extent like that uh, some other records? Probably not. I think that in some ways, like when we talk about objectivity, they remind me a lot of like, this is super specific about like the really popular kids, at, like Jewish summer camp who like you want to <laughs> oh, hate, man. but they turn out to be like super nice. And that's the same thing I think about Vampire Weekend as well. So I find like I kind of need an underdog sort of story to like really connect with something and i just i'll never get that i don't hold it against them but you know i just thought it was super weird when people uh talked about this new record as like a comeback or like they were not given their due and like days are gone was like a top 10 pass and job album like that was a success across the board um and when i think about like what it like when bands that were like dismissed in 2013 by critics, like I think of the 1975, I could tell you exactly what it was like to be a 1975 backer in that time. Well, speaking of dismissing the 1975, let's talk about their new record or their newish record, Notes on a Conditional Form. Look, you know, if if you follow me or me or Ian, you probably know that I was not a fan of this record. I was actually like pretty annoyed by this album, and uh, I wrote like, you know. I, a pretty, uh, I wrote a, a flat out pan 
of this record. I was pretty hard on it. And uh, Maddie Healy actually like retweeted my review for a while, and then he like unretweeted it, I think, because fans were starting to come after me a bit. <laughs> but that's okay. He could have kept that up. I actually appreciated him doing that because it gave that review a lot more traffic than it would have had otherwise probably. But my stance on that record, it really comes from a position of like actually liking a lot of what the 1975 have done up to this album. And you and I have talked about the 1975 before. I actually feel like I was defending this band when it was more fashionable to not like them. If I can take that position <laughs> there that like I was ahead of the backlash and then I was leading the backlash against them. But, you know, for me, I feel like the 1975 at their best, like like Haim, you know, they're really good at making like great pop songs you know i think of songs like love me sex somebody else it's not living if it's not with you all those songs you can't take away just how undeniably tuneful and infectious they are but unlike haim i feel like the 1975 have pretensions to be greater than just like a really good pop group you know they see themselves as like album artists and social commentators and like poet laureates of our millennial angst and you know Despite the fact that, in my view, like they've never made a front-to-back great album. And Maddie Healy, in my opinion, he's a frequently facile lyricist who conflates merely referencing things with actually saying something about those things that, that's meaningful. You know, to me, like when he's wearing leather pants and thrusting his crotch on SNL, I appreciate that. I appreciate having that kind of front man in modern you know indie music but like when he's stroking his chin in interviews and like larding his albums with the, with like these endless like spoken word tracks and he's writing these like vague lyrics that like to me don't really mean much on the page but like music critics infuse with like their own sort of think piece projections i just get impatient with it like i i don't i just don't think he's as smart as he thinks he is or that other people like to say that he is in their in their reviews you know like I got really annoyed, honestly, like when he was like making fun of Imagine Dragons for like writing like radioactive and calling that an empty pop song. Cause I'm like, dude, like, why are your songs any more significant? I feel like he should be defending Imagine Dragons because in a lot of ways they're doing a similar sort of thing where they're rock bands, but they're also incorporating a lot of different influences. And I guess I would just respect him more if he defended the lowest hanging fruit mm. in music rather than ripping on it, I, to me, that just, it struck me as like bullying behavior. I, I that really turned me off. Um, I think at this point, like the 1975 have made, you know, our, it's like our brand is that we make self-indulgent albums that are loaded with filler and somehow the filler is significant because I guess it like signifies, the overload of internet culture you know like I've, I've seen that written many many times about the 1975 it's like oh there's less good songs on this album because that's what the internet is like or or, <laughs> or social media or whatever it's like we got to put that critical cliche to bed but anyway uh i'm ranting about this record i should let you have the floor now because you like this album more than i do um so like yeah, like what would you say about the, the notes on a conditional form? Well, if if you guys have gotten anything out of this episode, is that uh, Steve draws the line with dissing Imagine Dragons, and <laughs> this guy was on Twitter yesterday defending Kings of Leon. So I mean, this guy's full of surprises as far as like you know what radio rock he is willing to stump for. But um, look, yeah. look, man, once if we're talking about objectivity, like it sounds like you want them to be in excess. And I kind of like the fact they're more like the Smashing Pumpkins. Uh, I think they kind of hit at the kind of cross section of that. But like, look, man, I have a 1975 screenshot as my Twitter avatar. I mean, I was down for these guys since 2011 when they were called the Slowdown. Um, the, you know, Maddie Healy is, well, will make these playlists where he puts in like bands like Oliver Houston and like a Japanese emo band called the summer ends like bands you've never heard of unless you're on like the Reddit's backslash emo thread. And, um, look, I, I just am in inclined to appreciate whatever it is they do. Even when they do some dumb shit, I think that makes them interesting, particularly when I compare them to like vampire weekend and Haim, who like everything they do is just so well thought through and so well executed to me it's kind of boring like the 1975 like they put out an album there's going to be some points where it's a little bit dull or they just completely face plant and 
The fact that they're willing to look stupid is something that resonates with me. And so I think one of the worst, like I appreciate that Love It If We Made It made them finally as appreciated as I think they should be. I think it was the worst song that to do that because it's a it's kind of a dumb song and it was it kind of speaks to as you were saying like critical need to like broadly gesture it's like this is what 2018 was like and um i think there are just so many better songs that talk like talk about like their relationship with the internet which is really like the biggest thing that most people think about but with this record um i like the fact that it's like 80 something minutes rather than like 75 or 74 because that just to me signifies this is no longer an album we think of this as a playlist similar to like you know drake's more life or um you know if if you're still reading this it's too late and you know at the beginning it's like i do think it starts out in the most asinine way like uh i i skip the intro the same way i skip the intro in wu-tang forever um but (laughs) it when i when i I take it in like 20 minute, 15 minute chunks nowadays because that's how long it takes for me to get to work or to do a note. And I get lost in it in the way that I would if I was just driving around as a teen or if I'm playing like Grand Theft Auto and you're just listening to one of the radio stations. Um, And it's really immersive in that way. But it all even if they do go off on various tangents, there's still like a 1975-ness to it. Like Maddie Healy has such a strong personality even in the worst tracks where you know who you're listening to. And I think that like a lot of the songs that were called maybe filler are actually fascinating to me. Like Roadkill, for example, that is the epitome of a deep cut, like where they're kind of doing like bar band blues and talking about like getting heckled in Texas. But yeah, I just appreciate the fact they committed to that experiment. It's a really poignant song. Same with Birthday Party. People shit on them for that Pine Grove lyric. But I mean... How many time? How much time have we spent on Twitter trying to untangle that controversy? And it's like, yeah, it's weird. No one knows what to do with it. I think it's, um, I think it's really improved for me. And I mean, the, they have Cuddy Ranks on a song. Um, I mean, how could you not be moved by guys, man? The last song, <laughs> like the dudes rock anthem. Uh, I mean, we could write a song about like that about our podcast. Like, if I had to put. <laughs> If like is this is this the best 1975 album? No, I think that their 2016 album is their masterpiece. Um, I think that every record they do is not perfect, but it's also awesome. And this one will, I mean, this one will end up in my, you know, I don't know what, probably top ten or whatever. I appreciate what they're doing. I do think this is probably the last album album they're gonna make. I think that they're already thinking towards like EPs or maybe playlists or I, I think the idea of what a 1975 record is going to look like in 2022 or 2023 is going to be very different but like no matter what like I just appreciate the fact that they're around like how many bands I know you got shit on for not liking this record but like how many of like our biggest bands can get like kind of made fun of and still be oh, kind of okay with it because I don't right. think you could, I don't think you could lob these sort of criticisms at like a lot of the critical favorites around right now. I mean, I agree. I, you know, look as a music critic, I I appreciate the 1975 existing because you're right. Like being annoyed by the 1975 is more interesting than like liking a lot of other people's albums. Like yeah. I, I, I will definitely admit that it's the same thing. Like we're. I said this in a previous episode that like, you know, it's a it's a shame that like Father John Misty isn't giving interviews right now because, you know, I know a lot of people find him annoying, but like the indie world is more interesting like when he's giving interviews, when Maddie Healy is giving interviews, even though like Maddie Healy I, I think he's uh, off Twitter I, again now. like Yeah, I think well, I think he got yeah, off he, Twitter. He's off. Yeah, but like, you know, I even when he's saying things that annoy the shit out of me, I'm like, well, I'm glad that he's doing this because, you know, most musicians don't have anything interesting to say. You know, they're, they're not even worth getting annoyed over. So I appreciate that. And to go back to what you were saying before about, you know, all the experiments on this record and how ungainly it is and how that is something you really love about it. And I appreciate that too, although I just feel like the 1975, they've done that several times now. I feel like... Even Smashing Pumpkins, they only made one melancholy in the Infinite Sadness. You know, like, the, <laughs> but they also made, like, Siamese Dream, which is, like, a pretty straightforward record, like, where every song is great. You know, and I feel like the 1975, you know, they 
they can't just keep making the same album over and over again. I think at some point it becomes a liability when you, in my view, again, make albums that just have a lot of filler All on right. them. Next, you know, th- then they'll, the they'll, just record, make, they'll, I, make the, they'll just make their Rick Rubin acoustic record that's 40 minutes. Well, no, like, <laughs> make it, make a, well, I, I, I can't remember who did this interview, if it, if it was Andrew Untenberger at Billboard. There was some interview they did with Healy. I think he brought up the idea of like, making their version of Is This It, make a 10-song, 40-minute album where every song is great and you could still do all the genre experiments, but you just don't have to have these interminable bits where everyone skips them after that. I, I just feel like, you know, their second record, I think, is a very ungainly record. There's lots of experiments on there. It's like, I like that record more than this record. I, I just feel like if you make that album every time, at some point, you have to call them out on it and say... You're just undisciplined. You know, like you're not making good albums, you know? <laughs> like we can't just keep making this thing like, oh, it's great that you're making albums that like we skip half the tracks on. You know, like it's Steve, I just want to point out that like you're the biggest guided by voices fan that I know. Well and <laughs> Well, even like Guided by Voices, like and I as much as I love them, there's lots of albums of theirs that I think are kind of boring, you know, that I don't get into. You well, they, know? well, they also put out like four or five a year. Right. But I, I, I think back to like what Joyce Manor told me uh, when I interviewed them because they, they're influenced by Guided by Voices and they were like, yeah, we're like kind of Guided by Voices if they just did the 10 good songs on the record. <laughs> <laughs> right. Exactly. I, I think that would be a very interesting experiment. I, I, I want to see if the 1975 can actually do that or... Maybe they just can't do that. Maybe they maybe they're only capable of writing three or four good singles at a time, and this is just sort of like a crutch that they can kind yeah. of say like, "Well, this is what we do." Yeah, these, yeah, this five minute spoken word interlude at the beginning of the record. We know you're not going to listen to it, but that's like part of the experience of the album. It's like, no, sometimes tracks are just not good, and they shouldn't be on there. And you should just, you know, you've already made your excessive record. Let's make something. That's a you know, that would be like a radical move for them to do. I'm sure Medi Healy cares about my opinion. He's going to take that to heart and uh, <laughs> you know, all that stuff. One thing I want to bring up quick, and we're running long here, which I knew we would do talking about 2013. Um, but I just wanted to throw this theory out to you quick. You know, Taylor Swift put out Folklore this year. She did. As, as you might have heard. Some people, Damn. it's like I hope she can get some more attention. You know, I hope someone can actually give this record the light of day. It's kind of flown under the radar. I, I, think, the, I think a mention on this podcast <laughs> is really going to give her the boost she needs, man. But, you know, Taylor Swift, obviously not an indie artist, but I feel like she's sort of been a peripheral figure in a lot of ways to this. As much, I mean, it's weird to refer to Taylor Swift as a peripheral figure, but, you know, I, I think of the record 1989, for instance, which to me was like her version of like a Heim record in a lot of ways, or like of a sort of new indie music, uh, you know, it had a very sort of indie pop sound to it, I think, in, uh, in 2014. And I think about Folklore, and it really is like a throwback to like the Dark Was the Night indie that we were talking about earlier and how, you know, the indie music that emerged in 2013, it kind of felt like a reaction against that in a way. Are we on the verge in the 2020s of like that sort of aughts era, maybe, you know, more introspective, more sort of self-consciously serious indie music coming back into vogue? Well, I, I want to say that like in, uh, Taylor Swift is not an indie artist. Her album got an 8.0 on Pitchfork, so she's an emo <laughs> artist. Um, yes. <laughs> but I think, I, think I, I just wish if that was the case, that it was going to mark a return to Dark Was the Night nostalgia. I wish this happened a couple months ago because I was pitching a 10-year anniversary piece on Ye Sayers' Odd Blood to Crickets. I really oh, have. If anyone wants to give me a shot at that, please. Um, but I digress. But I, I don't. I don't know if we're gonna like head towards that. You know, 2009 just yet. I don't think we're quite there. What I do think we're in the middle of is earlier in the 2000s, like OC, not not necessarily blog rock, but when I listen to like Haim's new record. Um, it reminds me a lot of Claro's Immunity, which is another album that, like, you know, the narrative made kind of intolerable until I listened to it. It's like, hey, wait, this is actually my shit right here. Um, that kind, that sort of OC-ish, like, kind of a little gritty, but not quite, like, sort of like Death Cab-ish in that, in that way. I think we're going to see, like, a lot of that music, and I think we can hear that with, like, Soccer Mommy as well. Um, kind of coming back around we're not 
quite at the precipice of like the artful, like tasteful. I think that I, I don't see this album really taking us there just yet, but I think we're low key doing 2004, 2005 around that sort of time. So I don't know. Maybe. Maybe, maybe, maybe we'll get like, you know, a revival of like Illinois or like those albums from that. Well, time. I was going to say, you said OC, like, you know, we got to do a Phantom Planet slash Rooney episode. Yeah. Fun fact. <laughs> fun fact. The first time I saw Haim perform live was 2012 before Days Are Gone. They were opening for Phantom Planet. See, there you go. Phantom yeah. Planet. That's going to be the next episode of this podcast. And, can't and, wait for and it. people were saying like, yeah, I've heard about Haim. They, you know, they've been shopping around for years and they just can't break and Lo and behold, you know, it's, they, they just need to, they had not established their sound. But uh, yeah, that's, I am down for a Rooney episode, dude. <laughs> I've heard so many bad stories about I opened for Rooney and they were total dicks to us, but that's neither here nor there. All right, well, we'll do the Rooney expose <laughs> in a future episode. I'm down. All right, we've reached the part of our episode where we like to recommend things. We call it Recommendation Corner. Uh, Ian, why don't you go first? All right, so um, I saw uh, this morning on Twitter that Vice published their fifty top 50 landfill indie lists. Now, I personally love lists, especially if they're from like subgenres. Now, what the hell is landfill indie? Um, if we're talking about like OC and blog rock, like this is what was happening in British rock music around that time. Like after the Libertines and the Strokes, it was the kind of the new indie era revival. And the bands like The Cribs, Maximo Park, Editors, Pigeon Detectives, like basically but what, what, what the buzz bin was to the 1990s. I think that's what landfill indie was for the UK. Uh, they don't mean land, like landfill indie. It's obviously derogatory, but you look back at this list and it's like, oh man, like I love that editor's song. And like, I haven't heard of like half these bands, but nonetheless, it's like, it feels like ancient history to see a time when like, first off, like Arctic Monkeys were just kind of like a British band that was like, you know, post libertines. Um, but it, it just takes me back to the good old days of like, being super interested in what Maximo Park had to say. Like all <laughs> like all these bands, like for the most part, they had like the type names, like, you know, like uh, the Cribs or the Pigeon Detectives. And I would recommend reading this list just to see like how quickly things can change in indie, in indie music. Cause like what they were also saying is that like, this is like somehow responsible for like the turn of the decade, like Lady Gaga or La Rue or what have you. I would go to a landfill indie night. Um, this list is like the Lord's work to me. It is remembering. Yeah. It is remembering some guys on a higher plane. Well, it's remembering some guys, and it's also again learning about some guys. As you said, <laughs> I was reading this list, and uh, I mean, I was fascinated by it. But like Pete and the Pirates, like that band, like who the hell are Pete and the Pirates? I mean, there's like definitely bands that uh, were, you know, maybe they had their 15 minutes in England, but they didn't really translate to America. But you're right. It's so fascinating to, for me almost, to read about the bands I don't know more than yeah. the ones that I do know. And it just made me think about the American equivalent of the vaccines. I mean, uh, yeah, I, like, review, I reviewed a lot of these bands, but like four years after they made the songs on this list. I remember feeling kind of wistful when I saw the Zootons on this list because oh, I remember <laughs> buying like a Zootons album at Best, Best Buy, Buy for like five ninety nine yeah. or something. Yeah, yeah. The, the, so that, that was like, oh yeah, I remember that song. And uh, like, Vines well, highly evolved it, is like Sergeant Pepper's of that realm. Oh yeah, yeah, for sure. So that's another thing that we need to get into at some point. Like we should do our American landfill indie, uh, you know, counterpoint to that list. That'd be a lot of fun. Rogue um, wave, baby. <laughs> rogue wave. Um, the album I'm going to talk about, this is the opposite of Ian Cohen music. I Dang. think I can say for sure. <laughs> this is an album. It's called False Spring by Zachary Kale. This album was described to me by my friend, and he's also the producer of this podcast, Brian Brinkman, as feeling like, feeling like a lazy day at the cabin, uh, which I I think Ian has already fallen asleep uh, yeah. <laughs> at that description. But like, you know, I would recommend this record to anyone who like, yeah, loves uh, Kurt Vile, Steve Gunn, um, you know, our our boy Rally Walker. I think there's some shades of that as well. You know, he's a, he's a singer guitarist uh, from uh, Brooklyn, 
and is really I you know I think he aspires to write in the style of like a lot of the great classic singer songwriters whether it's like Bob Dylan Towns Van Zant there's a little bit of Leonard Cohen you know there's there's just like a lot of melodic songs that often end up kind of drifting into like really cool guitar solos towards the end of the song which I have to admit for me is uh if you can do that and do it well, uh, you're going to have me on board. And, um, you know, similar to the artists I, I mentioned before, again, I, I think if you love like Waking on a Pretty Days by Kurt Vile, I think there's a lot of songs in that style on this record. And, you know, now that we're heading into Labor Day weekend, you know, summer is mostly in our rear view at this point. I think that this is a record that uh, you could spend time with over the, over Labor Day weekend and think about, all the weirdness and awful things that have happened in the past several months. And, um, you know, maybe just feel a little chill about it. You know, you can enjoy it, have a nice beer and a koozie, sit in your backyard in a lawn chair and enjoy this record. Uh, I have a feeling that if you put it on, you're going to want to listen to it many times in a row. It's just that kind of record. So, uh, and I don't think that record will end up in a landfill, but who knows? You know, we, we, we may all end up in a landfill at some point. Yeah, ironically, like 2013 was a year I really liked uh, Waking on a Pretty Days as well because like my life was way more lazier than it is right now. So I don't know. if That I'm was ri- a great year. You know, yeah. there's a lot of records we didn't even talk about that came out that year that, yeah. don't, that don't fall into this sort of like sort of pop indie realm. But yeah, Waking on a Pretty Days, you know, you talked about Yeezus, Death Heaven, oh, Sunbather came out that record that came out that year. Uh, lots of great records. So, you know, listen to Zachary Kale and then, you know, listen to some records from 2013. Uh, walk down memory lane. And if you're looking for more music recommendations, sign up for the Indie Mixtape Newsletter. You can go to uprocks.com backslash indie, and I recommend five albums per week, and we'll send it directly to your email box. Uh, we enjoyed our walk down memory lane here on IndieCast, and we're so grateful that you listened to us, and uh, we'll be back with more talk about indie music next week. <laughs>